people may not, you know, realize way back then that that wasn't the beginning of the internet, but it was really the beginning of internet commerce and internet businesses and driving business on the internet. And very quickly, in terms of fundraising and deals and capital, over a period of a few years, it went from nobody wanting to invest anything in internet companies because it was just a flash in the pan and it was going to be gone quickly to just a couple of years later, everybody wanting to invest everything they had in internet companies, even the worst ideas and the worst internet companies in history didn't matter. Anybody could raise any amount of money they want. So it went from nothing to everything pretty much overnight. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Neil Rosen. Neil has been an entrepreneur most of his life. After graduating college, he taught elementary school for 10 years prior to starting his first business a children's furniture store, which he built into a chain of five stores before selling. Next came a public school information business, The School Report, a business started with his wife, Roseanne, that supported the real estate industry by supplying third-party published school information uh, realtors could share with potential home buyers. That's actually uh, when Neil and I met, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, he sold that business to a large media company, stayed on, and it sold again a year later to an internet real estate company. Not done yet, Neil and Roseanne started eWay Direct, an internet software business that helps consumer businesses build email lists and send emails to prospects and customers. Uh, while Neil has retired from running that company after 20 years, it continues in business today. And if that's not enough, Neil and Roseanne have bought and flipped over 30 houses since they've been married. Today, Neil is working on a trivia game and writing children's books and TV shows. The Trivia Game uh, Originations, uh, and uh, two of his children's books will be launching in the coming months. Um, folks, I am super excited. Uh, you know, I've had so many great guests on this, uh, on the Fueling Deals podcast, and, you know, some of them have been my clients, uh, but uh, I, I probably, I don't know that I can think of a client who I have been working with longer continuously than Neil Rosen and Neil and Roseanne have become good friends of uh, my wife and I. So it's it's so exciting to have Neil on the show. Welcome, Neil. Corey, I'm glad you invited me. Enjoy being here and uh, and happy to be a part of this podcast, which has really been a great program that, that you have uh, brought out there. So uh, it's terrific that you're able to help other people, other entrepreneurs take their businesses to the next level. Appreciate being here. Well, it's, it's it's great to have you, and it's and it's uh, you know it's so special for me because we've had such a long uh, relationship, and and while I, I wasn't there during the uh, uh, you know the, the the furniture store days, I was there from the pretty early days of the school report, uh, and you know have have seen a lot of your journey. Uh, but before we uh, actually talk more about that journey and the deals you've done, uh, let's go back even further. Um, so when you were a little kid growing up, you know, eight, ten, twelve years old. Uh, what did you want to be? Because my guess is it probably wasn't a serial entrepreneur, but I could be wrong. Let me know. 
No, you're you're absolutely right. This entrepreneur was the furthest thing from my mind. I'm sure I had no clue what it even was. <laughs> uh, back in the early, early days, I actually wrote my first children's book, a Hardy Boy mystery that I, uh, I take off on the Hardy Boys. I wrote my own Hardy Boy mystery when I was eight years old and have been writing ever since. And I think I knew that eventually my life would come around to writing. Um, I've written a couple of business books um, that I've published and, and another book, uh, wrote a book with my daughter. So all these years while I've been running businesses and buying and selling houses and flipping houses and doing things like that, there's always been writing going on. But other than business books, I've never really published anything. And now I'm back to what I think I always knew I would be um, a writer of children's books and I'm loving it. Well, that's amazing that, you know, that's come for a circle decades later. Um, so, uh, okay. So now this might've been, uh, you know, covered in your bio, but maybe not, maybe there was something earlier. What was your first real business? However you define that. My first real business was, uh, back in the sixties uh, and it was a, it was a furniture store. It started out, um, as a waterbed store. Um, and then eventually morphed a little more into children's furniture, um, built that into a chain of five stores and sold that and of a company I had. And I actually sold it, um, to my employees, uh, to run when I moved on to my next thing. And that, that worked out really nicely. Um, it was, it was a great introduction to, to building something and to building a business, learned a lot, screwed up a lot. Ended up somehow on my feet. We did okay, um, but that was really my that was my first one. Okay, so so you've already mentioned one deal, right? So let's let's talk about that one just for a couple of minutes. So you you had a business, you decided to sell it to your employees. Um, talk to me a little bit about that that decision, right? Because you know nowadays that's often a uh, decision that entrepreneurs make. You know, do they sell internally, whether it's to employees, whether it's to family, whether it's you know, or they do they sell externally, you know, to an external buyer? What had you decide to sell it to the employees back then? Well, what I had decided back then was simply that I was ready to move on to the next thing. I guess that was my first indication that maybe I was a serial entrepreneur. Sitting there and continuing to grow that business forever really um, wasn't in my plans. And it was a it was a great way, like I said, to get started and start to get some business fundamentals under my belt and stuff like that. And I had a really good group of store managers. So in essence, I basically transferred the business to the store managers and received a payout over time. It was not anything that was making me or anybody else rich, but they were really good people and I wanted to move on. So it worked out really nicely for everybody. Oh, that's, that's great. Okay. So, uh, so let's follow the journey uh, forward. So then um, the school report was next. Is that right? Correct. The school report was the next business. I started that, um, I believe it was like 1981 or so, or maybe later, maybe, maybe 89. Yeah, that that sounds about right because I think you and right. I met you and I met in ninety one ninety two and you were you know you were pretty pretty early on and I, I and and listeners I I remember actually I I used to go and uh, and meet Neil and Roseanne in their home in Connecticut and uh, and you know this thing was pretty pretty early stage and, he, and Neil and I had met at some networking event and uh, you know next thing we knew we were uh, you know I was helping them uh, you know from the legal side in terms of uh, growing that business and. You know, from what I remember, Neil, in terms of some deals, you know, I, I remember you had um, some equity, uh, some people who had equity in the company who had done some uh, tech development and other things for you, sort of like uh, services for equity kind of thing. And um, 
And I do remember you wanted to raise some more capital, uh, but didn't want to do more equity. And we did this participation interest uh, vehicle. And then, uh, and then eventually, you know, you did raise some money from venture capital and then we took them out and then you, we sold the company. So, you know, uh, we had a lot of, um, it was an interesting entrepreneurial ride. And also, uh, there were a number of deals along the way. What, what do you remember about that? Yep. It was, it was definitely, I mean, Roseanne and I started that business in our basement and we had a friend who wrote a computer program and that computer program allowed us to print out information comparing different school districts in, it started in Westchester County and eventually became national, but you were able to print out comparative information on school districts. And then we went door to door to real estate offices and sold the computer program to real estate offices so that they could print out the information. Actually, even earlier than that, we did the printing for them and they would call in orders for reports and we would print them in our basement and mail them to it. Roseanne (laughs) and I work great together, but we don't work great together in the same house. So about six months into it, she threw me out and told me to go get an office. (laughs) she, She continued doing her stuff from home and I would do my stuff from the office. But once we did the raise, the challenge became You know, we could go around to local school districts and get information, but how to collect that same level of data on a national basis was was really a big challenge for us. And that's where the money from the raise came in. It it allowed us to do that. And and we collected information and a lot of information, over 250 different individual pieces of information on every public school district in the United States so that people who were moving were able to... um, were able to compare the school district they were leaving with other districts where they were going to. Everything from test scores to computers in the classroom to sports programs to everything going on. So, so that that business was the first I would say you know real business uh, that we got into, and it it grew from from the basement and on up from there. And especially for the younger folks listening, let me uh, let me set the scene here because you might think gathering data, you know, wasn't that different. This was pre-internet, folks. Okay, this business started. Okay. <laughs> let's point that out. This business started pre-internet, and that's why Neil said people would call st- you know stuff in. Or uh, I remember you know there's a point of people started faxing in you know uh, orders and, and they would snail mail these reports. Right. That's, that's how, uh, that was the time. So to gather data back then was a very different ball game. And in fact, um, what was interesting about that and, uh, you know, I mean, this is one I was intimately involved in, um, you know, I remember Neil, uh, when, you know, the internet was really starting to come in, you were smart enough to realize that as basically an information company, things would move that way. Uh, and we won't say who who it is, but you know. But I remember the the VC firm wasn't investing in internet at that time in terms of uh, being willing to put up more money, right? Yeah, that that that's exactly right. And what you say, you know, so long ago, you don't even really think think back that far. But we had we used telephones. We were calling every school district, and we were calling athletic directors and principals and superintendents and all different people to try to get information on the schools. Um, so yeah, it was a very different world there in terms of being able to collect information. And then what happened was, and and it's really, um, you know, you can understand that I don't think it was anything that was brilliant as much as the fact that we had tried a whole bunch of things in terms of distribution models and none of them really were building the company fast enough or growing the company fast enough. And then when the internet really started to, um, to happen, we moved in that direction 
probably just for no other reason than, okay, well, this seems to be hot. Let's try it and let's see what happens. And it ended up changing our entire business model because our business model had been sell the information to real estate agents in order to, um, you know, in order to give them information they could give out to the public because there were laws back then that didn't allow real estate agents, probably still are, to tell the public, we have great schools or our schools are better than that school district or this or that. Now they had the information from a third party um, that they were able to hand out. But when we went on the internet, the model really morphed dramatically and we started to give information directly to the public in terms of them telling us when they were moving, where they were moving. The information was free to the public online. So we actually became one of the very, very early internet lead gen companies. Um, and we were generating in 97 or 98, you know, 60,000 leads a month kind of thing um, that we were able to then sell to moving companies and mortgage companies and insurance companies and everybody else people get involved in when they're moving. Yeah, and, and I remember an early discussion that you and I had in which we talked about the value of the data, because if you think about it, folks, um, you know, if you've ever moved, uh, usually uh, right after you move, you know, you start getting stuff from the local dry cleaner and, you know, that kind of stuff, because they've checked the real estate records and seen that a title, you know, has changed. Somebody's bought a home. Um, but what Neil had back then was the ability to know when people were about to move because people ordered these reports when they were looking in different neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the kind of data, uh, that, you know, so that opened up a whole, um, set of people who were interested in getting, you know, to people who were hadn't moved yet, you know, like a mortgage company is useless after, you know, if they find out after you've moved, right? So, uh, so you know, th th that data, you know, became valuable. So, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, break down some of the deals you did because obviously that business had organic growth, right? You know, like you said, originally you had a subscription model, basically, right, where real estate agents paid a. Uh, I'm forgetting whether it's now the annual fee, a quarterly, you know, something uh, uh, to get the uh, unlimited reports is what I remember in the beginning. And, uh, and so, you know, you, you grew that you grew that organically, meaning, you know, just uh, hustle and getting more real estate agents signed on. But you also grew the business through, you know, a few different types of deals. Uh, I mentioned this participation interest um, at the time. Uh, you know, I, I know this one intimately because we structured it. But, uh, you know, at the time, Neil wanted to raise some, this is pre-VC, he wanted to raise some additional capital, but he didn't want to give away more equity. Um, so we did a, a vehicle where people would get a percentage of the of the uh, monthly subscriptions or annual subscriptions, whatever it was, from the real estate agencies in a certain territory in exchange for, for the money they invested. Um, so uh, uh, that was the first deal. Right. And that was like that was that was like <clears throat> that was like an alternative to franchising. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, right. People would now they right. And they, and they wouldn't they wouldn't sort of, you know, they wouldn't run, you know, th those. But but they invested in them and they would get a, a cash flow from those from those areas. Uh, and, and then obviously, you know, you needed more money and then you went the VC route. So uh, talk to me about some of the uh, you know, I mean, there's been, you know, so many people who have, you know, VC money is crucial to the uh, to the growth of their business, and it makes all the difference. People have bad experiences with VCs. I'm not asking you to comment specifically on your VC, but what you know what what was the, what was some of the lessons generally that you learned about raising capital uh, from that experience? Well, there, there was um, there was like you say, there's good and bad to all of it. I mean, the VCs by raising capital. Um, 
gave us a chance to to really grow the business. They they provided the um, the money we needed in order to take the company from being a regional company to being a national company. And most of the money they invested was spent on on growing the business. So it was probably, from their perspective and our perspective, a little premature as compared to investing in growing the business. They invested in in building the, the structure out so we would then be able to grow the business. And when we got to that point and had the data and was starting to grow the business, the model kept changing. We tried this, it didn't work fast enough. We tried that, it didn't work fast enough. We tried this, it didn't work fast enough. And then finally, we went back and then talking to them said, you know, we want to move this to an internet model. And as you had mentioned before, it was incredibly early in the internet days. And they kind of looked at us like we had two or three heads and basically <laughs> said, you know, you have tried 43 different things and we really don't have a lot of faith the 44th is going to work. Um, so so we'd prefer to just, um, you know, at this time, we'd prefer to just pull out. Um, after which we got actually quite lucky because the internet model um, did work for us, but there was certainly no guarantees. And it certainly put us in a in a bit of a tough situation for a while. Um, one of the one of the things with any kind of money that you bring in is it's pretty easy for a company to get used to having a certain amount of money. And when that's gone, boy, that can change everything and really turn everything upside down virtually overnight. Um, and you have to sort of regroup to be able to just keep going. So I, I would say at that stage, we, we were, I mean, it was well thought out, but we were also pretty lucky that the internet did actually grow that quickly in those early years. It was really amazing um, the speed of change when the internet started. I'm not sure people right now even even realize, you know, how fast it took off. Yeah, you know, there's, there's so much in what you said because, uh, you know, so I want to sort of break uh, break a few things down for the listeners from a deal point of view. So um, y- you heard Neil say several times, you know, we tried this and it wasn't growing fast enough. We tried this and it wasn't growing fast enough. You know, one of the things, you know, I've got several clients now who are, who are VC backed. Um, and, you know, one of the things that if you're making a decision on whether you want to raise, especially VC capital, you know, there's an expectation of growth, of rapid growth. The reason why they're putting money into your company is that they're looking for you to, you know, not, uh, you know, not grow 15 or 20% a year over the next 10 years. They want a 10x, you know, um, or more, right? So there's definitely pressure to grow when you have VC money. And then, you know, Neil said, we tried this, we tried this, we tried this, you know, what they call that nowadays is pivoting, right? They've come up with a great name for it. Every, you know, you heard it in tech companies. When so, you know, when somebody says we pivoted, it means it means we failed at whatever business model we thought was going to work, and we're, we're trying something new. So, but you know, back then they didn't have a, they didn't have the I don't think they were using pivot. Uh, but Neil pivoted many times, um, as is typical of a lot of entrepreneurial companies. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it seems crazy now that a VC wouldn't, you know, jump on for the ride. Uh, you know, uh, because somebody was going on the internet, but, but if you were around back then, you know, the, nobody, you know, knew if the internet was a fad or how fast it would grow or like, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was new technology. It was, uh, it was brand new and, 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 and nobody knew Neil was so early. So, you know, those are some of the interesting things about that deal and that relationship. And we had, we actually ended up doing a deal to, uh, not only, cause not only would they not put in more money, but we actually did a deal to take them out 
Uh, I mean, they, they still had some equity, but you know, we, we, uh, you know, we cut a deal to sort of, you know, uh, uh, take them out of the discount, which actually ended up working really well, Neil, right? Because you ended up, after the internet model started to, you know, take hold, and and also we were at a time when people were buying, you know, internet companies at good valuations, you actually then got an offer to to, um, to buy the business, right? Right. That, that's exactly right. And that was also a really interesting deal. People may not, you know, realize Way back then, that, that wasn't the beginning of the internet, but it was really the beginning of internet commerce and internet businesses and driving business on the internet. And very quickly, in terms of fundraising and deals and capital, over a period of a few years, it went from nobody wanting to invest anything in internet companies because it was just a flash in the pan and it was going to be gone quickly to just a couple of years later, everybody wanting to invest everything they had in internet companies, even the worst ideas in the worst internet companies <laughs> in history, didn't matter. Anybody could raise any amount of money they want. So it went from nothing to everything pretty much overnight. You saw that, right, Corey? No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, God, I, I remember some of the internet companies I worked with back then as a lawyer, uh, you know, and, and and their concepts and, you know, and, they, and the amount of money they were able to raise. And obviously, you know, most of them failed. Um, and it was similar, right, in the M&A market. I mean, you know, you, you guys uh, actually didn't raise additional venture capital at that point, but you were able to, um, you know, get to a point where somebody was interested in buying the company, right? Right, but this was very, very different. This was interesting, and this was this was a great deal for a number of reasons. Um, this was a the company that um, that purchased us was not at all an internet based company or an internet company. They were a very large media company, right? And as a large media company owning a bunch of newspapers around the country and things like that, they were interested in sticking their toe in the water with the internet in terms of the real estate market. And they had purchased a small company um, about a year before they purchased us, a small company in the real estate industry. The company actually sold um, internet tools like mortgage calculators and moving calculators and things like that. And they were a great little company and we had done some business with them and they knew us. And so they came to us and um, wanted to buy us to help them build it out to bring us together with that company they had already bought one and one, you know, hopefully three or four. And it was a very different experience because we were working with a, with a long-term old time company in the media industry who had done tons and tons of, of acquisitions and really knew how to go about it and knew how to set it up. So the knowledge base behind us and the help we were given at that point, to turn this company into something bigger was absolutely amazing. Um, one of the things I would say that was different for me for the first time is as the entrepreneur, I spent much more time not on doing the deal, which was done, as you know, Corey, um, but on the plan of what was going to happen once the deal was done and how the companies were going to work together and how they were going to merge and where the revenue was going to come from. So really a much more strategic deal and a much better thought out growth plan after the deal was done to allow the companies to grow. Yeah. So, so a few things on that, listeners. So this is what you know, we call a strategic buyer, right? It wasn't a financial buyer. So it wasn't like a private equity firm that was just buying it to be able to flip it later. And you know, make, this was a strategic buyer who bought it for a strategic reason. 
and merged it with another company in a related, you know, industry. Uh, and those deals are always, you know, uh, fascinating deals. A lot of times people are just looking for financial buyers because in theory you get, you know, you can get more money. But the truth is there's, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to do strategic deals like Neil did back then. Um, so that's one thing. And then, you know, what? so Neil, what, what happened on that deal, right, was that you and uh, your investors, uh, including the VC firm and your individual investors, uh, got got bought out. Uh, you, you got some equity in the in, in the uh, in the combined entity, right? And then that got sold again, right? Yep. And then, so then the the newspaper company put us together. We had a really strong plan in place. So the two little companies they had bought, we were able to more than double our business within the first year. And then the uh, and then the media company sold us to an internet company, to an internet real estate company for a lot of money and did really well. And we had you know a little piece of that going forward from the first deal, so it worked out great. And they actually wanted us to stay with the company after that, but at that point in time, my kids were little and they wanted us to move out to the West Coast, and we were pretty much stuck here. So at the at that point in time, we left. And that's when we started the next company. But it really makes a difference. It was it was a real learning experience for me in terms of um, the the ability they had not just to give you a deal or to give you money and then say go and go and kick it. You know, they they were really they really were very thoughtful and knew how to bring this together and were very helpful in terms of. Um, turning these two little companies because we were both we were both pretty small companies back then um turning turning these companies into into something bigger and working with us and and sharing their their knowledge so it was that was very helpful so that so that was you know the positive aspect and and uh i'm curious uh because this comes up for a lot of entrepreneurs when they sell the company because normally you know there's some sort of deal where they at least have to consult for a while, and very often, like in your case, they have an employment agreement where part of the deal is, uh, and you know, sometimes it's crucial to the deal, especially with with smaller companies that they work. You know, they continue to work, uh, and now you've moved from being an entrepreneur to an employee, and some people have challenges with that. How was that transition for you? Well, for me, that transition at the time was good. Again, I don't know how I don't know how it would have been long term because I have this entrepreneur at heart and, and right. always what I want to be and control my own fate. But they were just so strong to work with and they didn't interfere with us doing. They basically they basically said to us and meant it, we want you to keep doing exactly what you're doing. And if you need any help, we're here. And often we did need help and they were always there for us. Not just with, it wasn't help in terms of give us more money, this kind of thing. It was really help in terms of resources thinking things through, um, helping us put together deals with other companies that they could get us into. Um, there was really a lot of a lot of that going on. So it worked out great. And as I said, they sold it again a year ago and a, a year later. And after that, I was out and it was absolutely a terrific year. All, all the people, all the people were great. I don't know if I would have lasted as an entrepreneur three years or five years, but it was one good year. <laughs> right, right, right. And they sound like the perfect partner. And I remember that, that they really were. Okay. So now the second sale happens, you get another little, you know, uh, payoff. Um, and now you are, um, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a man without a country, so to speak. And, um, 
you know, I, 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 I sort of remember this, but I'll ask it as a question for our listeners. Um, how long did it take you to start your next business? Um, the next business started about 10 minutes after I left the other one. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's why I asked yeah. it that way. Cause I, you know, you want to talk about a classic serial entrepreneur, you know, the, uh, you know, he, he literally almost started it walking out of the door to the other one. So, uh, yeah, so that that's true. But but to be fair, Corey, the business grew out of the other business, out of the other business. One of the interesting things we had found with the school information was that when we started selling um, people who were moving to companies like moving companies and real estate companies and mortgage companies, insurance companies, those type of people, they wanted the information at a different point in time. They didn't want to know. The mortgage, com- the the real estate company where the person currently lived, wanted to know as soon as the person knew they were moving. But the real estate company where they were moving to only wanted to know three months before they were actually moving, and the moving company only wanted to know two months ahead, and the insurance company only wanted to know two weeks ahead. So we had to figure out a way to maintain communication with these movers in terms of where they were in the process and what they were doing. And we actually started one of the first email companies. And it was through the use of email where we would send these people email pretty much every week, giving them a tip on moving, especially tips around um, how to make a move easier for your children and things like that. And through that uh, email, be able to find out where they were in the process and then be able to sell the name um, to the people who wanted to buy it at the right point in time. And so when we sold the company in total, um, the email technology was not sold. And that's what actually got built into the next company, which was really one of the early um, email companies. And, and that's a company that we mentioned in your bio that you still own. You've retired from working in day to day, but that you've been running <clears throat> that company. Um, you know, for, for a number of years. Yep. Way, way too long. 20 years, <laughs> close, close, close to 20 years. That's, that, that's been the longest. And, um, yeah, and it's a, and it's a, it's a great little company. It did not morph into one of the big companies. We didn't do deals way back when, as you know, and we've morphed that in a few different directions, but it's a, it's, it's a nice small company. Yeah. And, and, you know, sort of very different path, right? No, uh, no VC money, no, you know, none of the stuff that you did, you know, in that other company. And, and, and also, you know, it's, it's a, it's a company that uh, unlike uh, the school report company uh, was, uh, you know, pretty much profitable from day one, right? It's a very different ride. There were probably a half a dozen email companies when we started. There are around a thousand of them now. And so many of them raised huge amounts of money that it became very challenged marketing against them. And we we built our business based on service and support and everything. But it it became a a nice um, lifestyle kind of business, um, much more than than one of those growth businesses. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's it's funny, people, because you've heard me probably some of you probably heard me talk about this before, because, uh, you know, the concept of, you know, when, when you get into people who run growth companies, they use lifestyle business sort of as a uh, as an insult. And and I don't believe in that. Right. I believe that as an entrepreneur, because a lot of those uh, a lot of those people who are scaling quickly or whatever, not only is there a high chance of failure, but even which is fine. That's the entrepreneurial risk. But a lot of them sort of maybe get to a place where they're not, you know, 
uh, with it not happy. And I'm a big believer that uh, if you're an entrepreneur, the reason why, you know, it, it, one of the biggest reasons why you should be an entrepreneur is, is that you get to create the life you want to you want to live. And if that is a life of, you know, doing big deals and raising lots of money and running all around and building, a, you know, a unicorn, nothing wrong with that. But if that life is, is building a great, you know, quote unquote lifestyle business that throws off some good cash flow and, and lets you live the life you want to, you want to live, then that's great as well. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always big on not having any judgment on any's past. And the, and Neil has built a, you know, I happen to, I know Neil and, and Roseanne and the kids and, you know, they built, they built a great life. And, uh, and, uh, and Neil always had, uh, you know, it, it's funny, Neil, cause you are such an entrepreneur that even during that 20 years, it's not like that was the only thing you were doing. You always had, you know, these side things, you know, whether it's flipping houses, whether it's looking at some of these uh, projects you're doing now in terms of the game or the children's book, you, you know, you always have something going on. Oh, that that's true. And and I don't know if you've talked about it, Corey, but but you bring to mind a really interesting thought. And I'm not sure if you've talked about it on one of your podcasts that I haven't, that I've missed or something, but, you know, it would be really interesting to track when you track people on the outside tend to look at companies. And they look at a company that was started by an entrepreneur, and then they raise money, and then they raise more money, and they raise more money, and they become this very big company. They go, wow, that was really a successful company, and it grew huge. I think a very large percentage of the entrepreneurs who started that company aren't part of that huge. And often they run into the same kind of thing where when that money first came in, they didn't grow fast enough. And all of a sudden... They're out and other key employees they brought in with them are out and, and the people who helped them grew, grow the business at the beginning, because there's a real saying out there that entrepreneurs are not really the ones that are going to take it. They're going to get it started. But then you need a more what professional management team to get it to be really big. Exactly. So they don't often the guy who started it isn't on an island uh, on Tahiti as often as you think they are. Yeah, no, no question about that. And and I did, uh, you know, I did have a couple of great episodes with, with people uh, exactly in that situation. So, uh, and I don't have the episode numbers uh, handy, uh, listeners, but you can just look them up. So, you know, we we had Brian Smith on, uh, who um, you know was the founder of Uggs. I mean, uh, an iconic right brand. I mean, built into multi-billion dollar, you know, billions, billions of dollars. Um, but you know, if you look at Brian, he was the consummate entrepreneur. He came over. Uh, uh, from Australia, started you know figuring out that nobody in the U.S. had cheap skin boots, which is a big thing in the in in Australia. Um, you know, and he and he built that company up. He founded it. He hustled. He sold them out of his car at the back seat. He's you know tells a great entrepreneurial journey of the ups and downs. But then he ended up selling that company because again, you know, exactly as Neil was saying, you know, the, he got it to a point he can get it to, and then it needed to scale significantly. And the the UGG brand you know of today. Uh, you know, was, uh, you know, of course, started and created uh, amazingly by Brian Smith, but taken to the level it's at by the company that acquired it from him. And then more recently, uh, uh, and you could look it up, I I had the founders of Naked Wines, uh, who, again, started from nothing. Great entrepreneurial story about, you know, uh, uh, being in a business to help collect money for a client and the, and the winery didn't have, uh, <laughs> didn't have the money to pay them. So they ended up like taking the equipment and making wine and trying to sell it on their own and, and ended up, um, you know, getting in with this little company that ended up to be Trader Joe's and then grew it. But again, you know, they got to a point where they sort of capped out and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and sold the company. So those are two examples, uh, of people we've had on the podcast that are, you know, had exactly the kind of journey that, um, 
that Neil talked about. And in their case, they had good exits with positive deals, uh, you know, with um, with good buyers. Then you have the whole set of people where it's not so positive, where they get forced out of the company, where they get deleted, diluted down to almost nothing, where they, you know, lose control of the company, um, uh, not of their own accord. So that happens as well. So, Neil, you're right on. Yeah, and that happens. I think that happens probably more frequently than than the second uh, case that you were talking, than the first case you were talking about, where they did get a good exit, where they do get forced out. And that's that's all about how the deal is put together at the beginning. That that's why that's one of the reasons why when you're young and you're starting and you have a small company and you're bringing in money, it's it's real easy to just be super excited about it. But it's important to have somebody who really knows what they're doing because this this happens not once in a while. This happens fairly frequently. You need to be protected right out of the gate. So Neil, before I, I want to, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about you know the the fun stuff, the great stuff you're doing now. But before that, um, any other uh, big lessons in terms of you know any of the types of deals you, you know you've done over time, like just general lessons that come to mind that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, to me, to me, the biggest lesson is in my mind, and and again, I learned it from from the newspaper people, but I've used it you know over and over again since then. To me, the biggest lesson is it's really, really important to be prepared for what happens after and to have expectations and to have a serious plan in place. If you're telling people, I'm going to double the size of my business in two years, you better have a really serious plan to make that happen that that you believe in all the steps of the way and the focus of the entrepreneur during the deal process should be more on being incredibly prepared for what happens the day after that deal is done and the month and the six months and the year than to worry about getting too involved in the crossing the T's and dotting the I's of the deal itself. Because that's where often, if you walk into that deal and you close the deal and your next day you're going, what now? The likelihood of success is very low. Yeah, that's that, that. That's a huge lesson, and and um, and so many entrepreneurs, you know, uh, make that mistake, right? You know, uh, uh, because they think, oh, great, you know, I, I've done a deal, I'm there. Well, no, I mean, there's there's integration, there's cultural issues, whatever. But then there's also, you know, what is the vision? What is the plan? What is the, you know, what, what's going to happen post deal? Whether that's raising capital, whether that's selling your company, merging your company, um, you know, doing any kind of strategic alliance, that kind of stuff, absolutely. Even, even, Curry, even things like on the employee side. Yeah. When you do a business, you know, a lot of times, the, you know, a few days after the business is is uh, is sold, you have the company coming to you and saying, "Well, we can take over this, this, and this. You no longer need these people. And these." So that's part of why people do a deal, and you need to be prepared for that also. Yes. No question. No question. Um, yeah. I mean, what? Right. Are, are you? Is part of the deal that your key employees get? you know, employment agreements and get to stay around or something going to be cut? You know, you need, you better know that up front. No, no question. And if they are cut, well, if they are cut, what does that mean to you? How does that change the way you are running the business and, and what's happening? That's right. That's right. And that's only one of the aspects, right? Then there's, there's technology yeah. integration, there's cultural integration, there's shared vision and planning for growth. There's, you know, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a lot. Uh, and, uh, and you're right as, as the, as the CEO of the company, you know, I loved when you said, you know, talking about the deal with the uh, uh, with the newspaper company, um, the publishing company, that, that that you know you focus on 
the future, right? You know, and you had your internal team. And of course, you know, we helped you on the legal side and et cetera, you know, handling the deal and you were looking forward. Um, so that's really what ideally a CEO or, you know, owner of a company should be doing in those situations. Right. And, and I don't want to sound like an advertisement for you, but it really is. It, you get so excited about the deal and the entrepreneur wants to get so involved in the deal. And it's really the last thing they should be doing. They really need to. It's very hard to picture when you're when you're when you're that young or when you're that small and then you're going to grow bigger. It's really hard to picture in advance what that company's going to look like. And it's so important for you to be able to do that. It's, it's that's what you really need to be thinking about. What's the business plan? What's the business model once this acquisition or this input of money? What is it going to look like? That's where the focus of the of the entrepreneur should be not on doing the deal. That's good, great advice. Um, so, Neil, talk, talk a little bit about uh, the fun, the great stuff you're doing now, and then also, you know, if people want more information uh, about you, you know, uh, where, where they can find you. Okay, well, it's, it's easy to find me on LinkedIn, um, Neil Rosen. You'll you'll see me there, and 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 very easy to find. And boy, and so I was I was when I was getting ready to retire from this, and I was like, oh my god, what am I going to do now? Um, and my wife kept telling me, don't worry, <laughs> so <laughs> things to do. So all of these years I've been doing, like Corey said, it's, it's never enough. So I'm home at night and I'm writing or I'm inventing or I'm doing something. So um, we, over the last, probably, it's probably been 10 years, Corey, since we started building this, this trivia type of game. Yep. But now that I have the time, I'm, I'm bringing it to market and uh, we've had all the prototypes built for it. And now we're test marketing it out there with people and uh, love to get you together with a group, Corey, to play it. Um, and we're doing it. that. And I two had two of my children's books are now totally done and being um, put together uh, to publish um, on Amazon and on other platforms. I'm, and I'm building my publisher platform and I'm working on a, a children's TV show. So everything with me, it, it's funny, you know, I, I left teaching and I was teaching elementary school and then, I mean, the, the furniture store was children's furniture stores. The, um, the school report was all about children's school. So I've always been, I've always been hanging around that area, and now I am really um, doing it. So now I'm going to be publishing. All, this year, I expect to publish at least six children's books, wow. um, get the TV show going and the game. So it's really exciting. And they're not, I'm not writing all these books today. Over the years, these books have been written, and now I'm just, you know, finishing them, which is much more work than writing them. But still, let's go with that. That's that's what I'm doing. But, but you know, the, the the difference with you, Neil, is that you know, and I've talked about this on the uh, you know on the show and some of the other content I put out is that you know, uh, so many people write books and self-publish them and and think you know and have no business model and no business sense around it, right? And they think you know, oh, I'm just going to publish a book, and they don't realize that the average book, and by the way, this includes you know major publisher deals and so, you know the whole range of everything. You know, the the average the average book um, sells under 300 copies, right? 98% of the books sell under a thousand copies. Um, most people, you know, write a book, they think it's going to sell the, and you know, their mother and a few friends buy it. Um, but you know, you like me, when I did my book, um, you know, it, it, being an entrepreneur, you understand nothing, nothing happens without a business model around it. And I know you have business models around these things. That, no, that's exactly right. And I got some really great advice on that when I was trying to decide whether to self publish or, or publish through a, a, a known publisher, and 
in today's world, it's, it's, it's so incredibly easy to self-publish. But the advice I got was just remember, when you self-publish, you are no longer a writer. You are a publisher. Right. So you're not a writer who is self-publishing. You are a publisher. And think about all the things that publishers do in terms of marketing, in terms of distribution, in terms of design, in terms of layout, in terms of everything else. And you've got to decide if you're ready to have that be your job. And if not, you shouldn't self-publish because you're not just a writer who's going to throw some books up there and everybody's going to run to it and buy. You, you have to be the publisher. You have to be a marketer. You have to be a distributor. Right. No, no question. And you certainly have the background and the skills to do that. So I'm, I'm super excited to see, I, you know, I, I, I always love uh, talking to you about what you're doing and, you know, this is, uh, you know, we, we, we often just have these conversations, you and I, we don't have to get to do them on a, on a podcast, but um, you know, you, uh, as, as most of the folks know, you know, my, uh, I love the entrepreneurial world. I mean, I'm about to leave, uh, actually, uh, this will be, um, uh, aired after I've come back from, you know, a couple entrepreneurial tr- retreats in Sweden and some other places. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's my world. It's where my clients are. What I love is because you work with amazingly creative people who always have interesting ideas and, you know, and, and, and are, you know, always doing something. And Neil is certainly, uh, the consummate, you know, uh, entrepreneur. So Neil, I, 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 I always love talking to you. It's, it's fun. Every time we get together, it's great. You and Ron, it's just uh, it's a terrific time, and we have to do it again soon. No question. So I got, all right. So my last question for you before we sign off here is the question I ask at the end of every uh, one of these podcasts, which is, uh, as you know, authenticity is one of my highest values, and for me, that's not about someone external ethics. It's really about um, sort of you know knowing your inner truth, who you are, and and living a life that's aligned with that. Um, so I just want um, you know give the listeners your take on authenticity and how it affects uh, your uh, life and business and deals. Well, from a business perspective, it's actually pretty easy, Corey. It comes back to a good business deal is always a win-win. And that, that's part of what's so important about building the model ahead of time and where you're going to take it and making sure that, that you feel comfortable. You're not, you're not taking advantage of anybody and they're not taking advantage of you. So it's really important. And from, from the perspective of my writing and my writing children's books, um, I don't think anybody really starts out writing children's books as a business to see how much money they can make. <laughs> to me, writing children's books is a mission that I am on, make the world a friendlier place. And my children's books, the idea of them is to, is to introduce children to artists from around the world, because I believe you can learn about different cultures through the eyes of their artists. And if kids do that, all of a sudden, other places and other types of people become a whole lot less scary and a whole lot more interesting to them. And artists will be able to portray that. At least that's what I'm seeing in the books I'm doing. And so that's what I'm excited about. Uh, that's, that's great. Neil, it's been such a joy to have you on the, on the podcast. Uh, and a pleasure to be here. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at FuelingDeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.